Hello, and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Nell Ostrom, Associate Editor for Canada's History Magazine. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Cote, who was the head of the Montreal Police Bomb Squad during the 1970s. It's been four decades since the FLQ crisis erupted in Quebec. The whole country was gripped by fear as terrorists planted explosives all over Montreal and kidnapped two politicians, killing one. Mr. Cote played a key role in these events. Mr. Cote, tell me how you ended up becoming part of the Montreal Police Bomb Squad. Well, I was at the right place at the right time, I would say. The, the first bombings took place in spring of 1963. You, you may recall that you're too young for that, but you have read that the, uh, mail, the bombs were planted in mailboxes in the Westmount area and they caused a lot of damage. These uh, incidents took us by surprise, not only the population, but the police as well, because we were not prepared for that type of action. So this was all new to you? Yeah, yeah. Prior to 1963, there was no real bomb squad. Uh, incidents of that sort were, were very rare, and they were handled by one man of the detective office. Uh, but when it came, uh, when bombs were put in series, you know, uh, they became more serious, and the Montreal Police Department and the city decided to form a real bomb squad. So volunteers were recruited, preference was given to former soldiers, and I was out of the army just a couple of years before. And uh, 30 policemen from different forces, RCMP, Montreal Police, Provincial Police, and the military were uh, sent to a military base where the Royal engineers, uh, who had had some experience in dealing with bombs from the two cobors that, that were active in, in, the, in the 40s and 50s in BC and uh, in, in, in the prairies. So these guys had some experience at handling bombs, and they became our, our lecturers. So within three weeks, uh, we became the, uh, the bomb experts. <laughs> uh, and we were back in Montreal, and we were over, overwhelmed with bombs. We, we, we had dozens and dozens of, of calls, not all real. Some, there was a lot, lot of uh, phony calls, but real stuff uh, as well. So the first wave of bombings uh, lasted... Uh, about two months, and during that time, the first fatal bombing occurred when a night watchman at the military establishment was killed, Mr. O'Neill. And uh, the first arrests were made, and we thought that it was over. And we were ready. The city was, uh, was ready to dismantle the bomb squad. But then, to our surprise, six months later, uh, here we are again. With this, this time not with bombs, but with uh, raids in military establishments where uh, hundreds of rifles and armament were stolen for another form of action by another group. And from 1963 on, we faced five waves of terrorism, mostly bombs, uh, five, five waves of, uh, of dynamite attacks, and uh, that led us to the October crisis. 
Okay, so you had a total of three weeks of training, and then you were the experts, and you went out on the streets, and you responded to all kinds of bomb threats. This sounds like you were in a very dangerous situation. What was that like for you? Well, you see, uh, in those days, we, 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 we had no equipment, not because of the, the for, not for budget reasons or, or because the city did not want to buy them. Bomb, uh, efficient bomb dismantling equipment did not exist. So we had to, to improvise. Uh, other departments, uh, mostly New York and Los Angeles, did have some experience, they did have some equipment, but they, they were mainly concerned with pipe bombs made with black powder. But dynamite bombs in a series was something so unusual that they, they, there was no equipment, there was no trailer capable of, of containing uh, uh, an explosion from a dynamite bomb. So, uh, of course, the risk was great. We, we, we had to, you know, uh, act the bomb with our bare hands, with a small pair of cutters and all that. Uh, but as time went on, we did design, uh, we did make our own equipment and other cities as well, because our bombs were heard not only in Montreal, but all over the continent. Montreal was the first city, the first uh, urban area in North America to be hit by uh, political bombings in series. So as you say, Montreal was the first city in North America to experience this particular kind of terrorism, these waves of bombings. Can you tell me a bit about how these waves of bombings evolved? Yeah, each wave has its particularities. Uh, in some instances, federal buildings would be hit, mostly military uh, establishments. And bombs were... Uh, as each wave started, we had small bombs, and the size of the bombs increased as the wave went on, to the point that in uh, 1970, we had bombs that were uh, that weighed uh, 150 pounds of dynamite. In those years, uh, there were something like 300 incidents, real incidents in Montreal, uh, half of them incendiary devices, and the rest, dynamite bombs. Of these 150 dynamite bombs, about one-third was dismantled because they were uh, found uh, by alert security people or policemen or, or, or citizens who became, you know, uh, intrigued by the presence of a, 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 of a bag in a place where it, it, it did not belong. So uh, we were able to dismantle a certain number of bombs also because of malfunctionings. But a, a bomb that did not function is, is, is a very dangerous baby to handle because it's very sensitive. So uh, uh, we were very, very fortunate. I guess for most of us, when we think of the FLQ crisis, we think of the events of October of 1970. But I guess we've forgotten that things were happening well before then. Many people believe that the October crisis was, was, was an event uh, by itself. In fact, October, the October crisis was the culminating point of a seven-year-long period of terrorism in Montreal. The first six years mostly marked with bombings and a new thing in 1970, kidnappings. Now, you mentioned the kidnappings. Tell me about the role that you played uh, during the abductions of James Cross and Pierre Laporte. 
Well, when it happened, on the, on the 5th of October of 1970, it was a Monday morning, uh, when it started, uh, in fact, we, we felt it coming because the FLQ never invented anything. They, they, they have copied uh, tactics used by other movements throughout the world. For instance, uh, um, bombs in mailboxes, they did not invent that. Uh, back in 1916, the IRA was planting bombs in, uh, in, in, in mailboxes. And so the FLQ uh, looked at what was going on around the world. And in 1970, kidnappings were very popular, especially in South America and in the Middle East. So the Tupa models were very active in, in in Uruguay, for instance. So we, you know, we had a feeling that it would come here sooner or later, and it happened on the first on the fifth of October. Uh, of course, right after the kidnapping of Mr. Croc, the British diplomat, uh, the police was trying to search everywhere in the city, and we had to accompany uh, the police teams. Uh, just in case explosives were found, but 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 also because the, the the technical section, which was the official name of the bomb squad, we were also the SWAT team. We we were carrying the heavy weapons in our mobile unit. So just in case there would be a shootout, uh, we were there. But things went very smoothly. Uh, in the case of, of Mr. Cross, uh, we must have conducted hundreds. Of, of searches in, in the days that followed the kidnapping of crowd, but no no shooting after it and no explosives, no bombs were found. Yes, explosives were found, lots of them. For one good reason, uh, people got rid of their dynamite. <laughs> some people who, who, were, who were not terrorists, but for some reason had explosives, they got rid of them because they were afraid that they would be arrested. And it was, it was not good to be charged with possession of dynamite under the uh, War Measures Act, for instance. So we found an unusual amount of dynamite and uh, other explosives uh, on the public, public on the street during that period, until the day Mr. Cross was found. And how did the imposition of the War Measures Act and the coming of the Army to Montreal change the way that you did your job? Prior to the 15th of uh, October. See, the, the army arrived on the 15th of October. The war measure attack was invoked on the 16th of October, and Monsieur Laporte was found dead on the 17th of October. So on the 15th of October, it was a, a great sight to see the soldiers arriving in Montreal because there was no, we had no more police to put in the street. You see, uh, Montreal was uh, a force of 4,000 at the time. But if you Divide that in three shifts and seven days a week. That doesn't have, that doesn't give you many people at the same time. Uh, if you want to cover all the public buildings, we were acting as bodyguards for for politicians. We had to we had to to keep watch on the strategic buildings and all that. So, and all the time, uh, live continues continued in Montreal. There were street accidents. They were hold up. We had a, a fleet of ambulances that that still had to. To be running, so, but there was no, no police on the street, mm-hmm. and it was only normal that the soldiers came not to occupy the province, as as this has been said. Uh, in, in, there's many, many, uh, many uh, documentaries that I've seen in recent days, and quite often we say that the army came to occupy the 
Quebec or to occupy Montreal. They were not, they were not an occupation force. They were here to relieve the police from non-essential uh, functions such as the, the guarding uh, buildings and uh, L, uh, you know, uh, providing uh, personnel when uh, raids were made, they, they would use it to, 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 to make a, a cordon around, around a, a block so that the police would be uh, able to you know, make a search, but they were simply replacing the police in non-police non duties, that's all. The military and the war measures act are two different things. They are not related to one another. You see, the military could have been here without the War Measures Act. So how did you feel at the time about the War Measures Act being imposed? First of all, I did not even know that it, it existed. Most of the members of the police force were not aware that there was such a thing as a War Measures Act. It was passed at four, at four in the morning. We learned by we learned by uh, Tilex that the uh, the cabinet had invoked the War Measures Act, uh, which gave the, the police uh, huge powers. And I thought that I thought that this was much too big. You know, the, uh, War Measures Act had been invoked only twice in Canadian history: in First World War, Second World War, and 1970. See that, in my view, it was giving. Uh, the status of belligerents to uh, a small group of uh, young people. We, did, we were never aware of how, how big the movement was. But to me, it was it was much too big to use the World Measures Act against against a small group of uh, you know uh, young terrorists. But the day after, when I learned that Laporte had been murdered, well, that was another story. So I said, I, I, I accepted. Uh, the fact that we had to live with the War Measures Act because uh, the situation became much more serious from then on, and uh, that's the way it was. Now, you played a role in the release of James Cross. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. I was, I was on the scene uh, the night before, the December 13th. Cross was liberated in the afternoon of December 3rd. 1970. I was on the scene the night before. Before, because uh, at that time we had serious leads that uh, made us believe that Mr. Cross was uh, being held in a certain house on the Rue des Collet in Montreal North area. But we had no certainty. We were not sure that he was there. And of course, there was a plan. There was a plan to. Uh, an intervention. There would be an intervention anywhere. It would have been uh, located. There would have been a huge intervention. But before you you start that, you have to be certain that the uh, the hostage is there. And so my role, in fact, the role of my squad, of which I, I, I was the commander, uh, we were tasked to see if in the basement of that house. If there was a car, if, if, if there was a vehicle, if there was a, there was a, a door, a garage door, uh, panel door, and, and, and uh, we were asked to see if there is a vehicle in there. So we were able not only to confirm that there was a, a, a car, but also we could read we could read the license plate nine K nine what nine nine K nine eight one four. I didn't remember the the. the 
They played 40 years after. And that was a serious lead because that Chrysler was uh, registered to one of the main suspects in, in, in the, uh, the kidnapping. So it must have been one o'clock, I would say. Then uh, it became more and more serious. So we evacuated uh, the neighbors with unmarked police cars and, and, and all that. Uh, and gradually, the occupants uh, realized that they were under surveillance. So in order to test if we were there or not, they threw a piece of pipe, a piece of pipe, a one foot long piece of steel pipe from the window. In that piece of pipe that I recovered, almost immediately, there was a final communique saying that Mr. Cross uh, was there. Uh, also, that there were many sticks of dynamite with detonators, and uh, leading us to believe that, that, that if we were if we were invading invading the place, it would blow up. It, it would simply blow up. And the community ended by um, saying that they would they would be ready to negotiate the liberation of Mr. Cross. So that was the beginning of Operation Cordon, the largest police military operation ever held in the history of our country. Then negotiations started between uh, two lawyers, one representing the government and uh, another one, the, uh, the terrorists. Uh, they discussed a couple of hours before they finally uh, agreed that Mr. Cross would be would be liberated in exchange for a safe conduct. So that's the, the way it was. So Cross was liberated and the, the kidnappers uh, voluntarily uh, were exiled, voluntarily to Cuba. So it was December of 1970 and James Cross had been released after two months in captivity and his kidnappers were exiled to Cuba. And what happened after this in terms of the level of terrorist activity or bombing activity in Montreal? Uh, there were some attempts to uh, give a new life to the FLQ. Uh, I remember one day a police, a police uh, paddy wagon was totally destroyed, <laughs> destroyed with, with a dynamite bomb. And there were a few things, but not too many. So we can... We can now say that the War Measures Act broke the back of the FLQ because they have never recovered. Although they, there were some attempts to bring it back to life, but it, it, it was, uh, that was the end of it. And that was the end of it. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me today, Mr. Cote. It's a pleasure now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Robert Cote is the former head of the Montreal Police Bomb Squad. He retired from the force as a chief inspector in 1990, and he went on to serve as a city councillor and deputy mayor. He's also an officer of the Order of Canada. My name is Nell Ostrom, and I'm the associate editor of Canada's History magazine. For more about the October crisis, read the October-November issue of Canada's History. <laughs> ¶¶